Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Tool. And you join us just as we are arguing over sofa colours. But we will leave that rapidly to one side and return our attention to the general election. Um, starting point, I think, given particularly when we're recording this, is the big YouGov MRP poll stroke model that was released a couple of days ago. The run-up to its release at 10pm on Wednesday night, I think, was treated a little bit like uh, children at Christmas by a lot of people. For, for polling nerds, for exactly. polling nerds, anyway. Um, Actually, it was treated more like the general election result was happening, wasn't it? I half expected uh, <laughs> yes. an exit poll to be released of the MRP uh, model, and uh, you know, well, there sort of was an. Why exit wasn't there a poll? Dimbleby? Why wasn't there a Dimbleby yeah. hosting live coverage of the MRP results? Well, there sort of was an exit poll because somebody I can't remember who, probably Guido Fawkes, I guess, tweeted a graph of the change in the odds on the betting markets in advance of the release of the poll, <laughs> on the basis that if any information had leaked out, it meant would make move betting markets and therefore you could judge judge the state of rumours and leaks by Fair moves enough. in the betting markets. Anyway, for anyone worried that um, there's not been enough focus on policies this um, election, but only on who might actually win in the horse race of uh, election, don't worry, we're not going to talk about any of that at all, are we, Mark? <laughs> so, about MRP, then. Okay, I think it's worth <laughs> saying a little bit about how MRP works, um, because obviously, particularly for the Liberal Democrats, the relationship between vote share and seats is a relatively fluid relationship, given the first past the post and mm-hmm. the uh, spread of Liberal Democrat support across different areas. So, Most famously being when, in the 1992 election... 97. Lib- uh, yeah, so from the 1992 election to 1997, yeah. the Lib Dems lost votes mm. but gained seats quite considerably, going up from, what, 20 to 45? Uh, roughly speaking, roughly, correctly. Roughly, yeah. uh, I think both those numbers are slightly off. All right, but all anyway, right. anyway um, now the thing about the YouGov MRP poll stroke model is I guess twofold. Firstly MRP models and their use for predicting election results is a relatively new area it's a relatively new field Mm -hmm. of endeavour so although YouGov MRP got all the plaudits at the last general election in the UK for being the one that's not only said there would be a hung parliament when for example Jim Messina who was working on the Tory campaign famously responded in a very derogatory and therefore subsequently very foolish manner to mm-hmm. that hung parliament uh, result. Not only did, did 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 they get the overall picture right, they also got a lot of the individual constituency results that people had poked yeah. fun at, like saying, "How could Labour possibly win somewhere like Canterbury? This yeah. surely shows this is complete nonsense." A comment that then didn't stand up very well to Indeed. the counting of votes. And that said, although. You know, a great debut in British politics. It is a relatively new area of endeavour, so one should have a degree of caution about how much yeah. reliance one can place on it, and particularly that... And, of course, UCOV themselves say that there are wide confidence intervals. Exactly. So even within the survey and the, uh, and the MRP model, you can, at the extremes, it could be a hung parliament still. Indeed, and, and on average you would expect the wide confidence intervals for individual constituency projections mm-hmm. to average out across yeah. the country... Um, so you can have more confidence in the overall picture. But, of course, as you say, there's both the question about the accuracy of the overall picture and, indeed, to what extent uh, people's views change between yep, now indeed. and polling day. Snapshot, not a prediction. I think the one other thing that's maybe worth saying about how the MRP stuff works is the thing not to do uh, is to look at the 100,000 sample, think that means all about 130 people per constituency, 
because this excludes Northern Ireland, and then therefore conclude, oh, 130 is far too little, therefore you can't tell anything about constituency, mm -hmm. because that basically misunderstands the whole purpose of MRP, which is to say that you can model how any individual voter is going to behave by looking at their key characteristics, and because you've got just such a large sample, there are loads of other people with those characteristics. Yeah. So if you're trying to work out how a... Remain voting, chocolate-loving, doctorate-holding, Liberal Democrat... From North London. From North London. ...is going to vote, um, you obviously have very few of them in a poll, even a poll of 100,000, but you have quite a lot of Liberal Democrats, you have many thousand Liberal Democrats, you have many, many thousand people from North London, you have tens of thousands of chocolate lovers. So for each of those characteristics, you can pull on the data from a much larger number of people to basically, characteristic by characteristic, build up your mm -hmm. picture of how are they likely to vote. What this means, therefore, and this rough rule of thumb I tweeted and then immediately thought, oh my goodness, some MRP expert is going to say this is complete nonsense. But thankfully, uh, Ben Lauderdale, who was one of the brains behind this model actually tweeted to say he does this as well <laughs> is my rough rule of thumb therefore is to say look at the number of people polled per constituency on average in this case about 130 think about how many constituencies worth of people you would need to have to have a normal robust poll so probably six or seven lots of 130 gets you to an okay sample size mm -hmm. and what MRP therefore can do is pick up any trends or variations or factors that apply across at least that number of constituencies. So there were many more than six or seven seats for the Lib Dems won in 2010. So mm -hmm. if there is a historic hangover effect from that MRP, this sort of MRP model can pick it up. It can deal with people being male or female, young or old, student or not student, having, form, having voted leave or remain. So lots, all of those characteristics it can deal with very well. It's the sort of things that only apply to a handful of constituencies, or indeed maybe only one constituency, that is where you'll get into a degree of resolution beyond what MRP can manage. And those calculations obviously vary a bit depending on the size of the sample, because in this case it's 100,000 divided by 632. Um, I'm slightly surprised that Gina Miller's tactical voting outfit had a ma much, much smaller sample um, for their MRP data, mm -hmm. which means the degree of resolution about understanding individual constituency variations is that much less. Although, broadly speaking, in terms of overall patterns about, you know, are the Lib Dems up a lot in Remain voting areas? Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can see how it might work. But the real question about how accurate it is is all to do with modelling. So as ever with opinion polling, you get to the conclusion that people who think they're making smart comments about how the sample size is too small are almost always completely missing the point. Okay. Because it's really about the modelling. Yeah. So, so that will, in the end, we'll see with the election result how indeed, good the modelling was. Not, not that long to go. So I mean, when I was uh, when we were talking before the podcast, uh, I said my one line was mm. it's a hundred thousand sample size and extrapolated into individual constituencies. Mm. Uh, using uh, uh, those characteristics. Mm. So it gives you that uh, sense uh, of what's happening mm. in the constituencies and the bad news for those who've been living under a, a polling nerd rock uh, and therefore haven't been exposed to the MRP results is that uh, the central forecast, uh, as I said, why confidence intervals, could be a hung parliament, could be a Tory landslide, but the central forecast um, from the uh, current MRP model is that uh, it's conservative majority of 68 uh, with uh, Conservatives making about 45 gains um, from Labour, Liberal Democrats more or less standing still, um, gaining four or five seats, but also losing three or four seats along the way, a couple to SNP uh, and a couple to Tories. So uh, 
not a great uh, outcome from a Lib Dem point of view, or indeed from a Remain point of view, given that would point to a pretty hefty majority for Boris Johnson to be able to um, push through his uh, his withdrawal agreement and maybe even then enough numbers to withstand the troubles he will doubtless face in the next year as he negotiates the actual free trade agreement he, he hopes to uh, broker with the EU. Can I add vote shares? Because of course yep, this sure. is a slightly more promising picture for the Liberal Democrats but mm-hmm. also I think gets to the heart of how likely is it that how people behave in <clears throat> on polling day in a couple of weeks' time will be the same as they were behaving at the point at which the YouGov polling tried to capture that accurately. Um, so the Lib Dem vote share is uh, down as having doubled on the last election, up to 14%. Mm-hmm. Um, and the central estimate is the number of seats Lib Dems win, though, is only up by one. Yeah. Um, and of course, that begets the question, well, how can your vote share double and your number of seats not double? Mm-hmm. Welcome to First Past the Post, obviously. Mm-hmm. But in particular, if you look at the individual constituency results, I think there's, well, a couple of things struck me. One is that they match up pretty well to the individual constituency full-on opinion polls that have been done. So things like constituency polls where they have shown the Lib Dems moving from being massively behind winning to being in with a decent chance and the right tactical voting choice uh, for people who want to stop Brexit and all the Tories. the, the MRP stuff generally matches up pretty well with that, which suggests yeah. that the constituency polls are pointing a fairly accurate picture. Including in places that uh, we've highlighted before, where the Lib Dems are starting from third place, and based on the 2017 election, you would say, why is this the party targeting yeah. uh, this, uh, this seat? But um, the MRP survey does back up um, the party's uh, judgment, for example, in you know, a place like Kensington with uh, and... Uh, what others? Chelsea. Uh, C- and Cities of London and Westminster. Cities of London, Westminster, thank you. And uh, Finchley and Golders Green with Luciana Berger, etc. So a number of those um, uh, Conservative and indeed Labour um, defectors to the Lib Dems who've been targeted at seats yeah. where previously the Lib Dems weren't within, in with a shout, uh, but which European results, local election results, etc. had suggested the party would be smart to target, do appear in play, but with the caveat that the current surveys do still show the Lib Dems trailing. Yeah, and if, if you want a sort of qualitative rather than quantitative way of summarising the situation, I think in a lot of those seats uh, that the MRP model doesn't have the Liberal Democrats winning, if you look at those vote share figures and thought if this is a parliamentary by-election and those were the vote share figures a couple of weeks out from polling day, Lib Dems will probably even be the favourites to win mm-hmm. in the sense that where tactical voting really kicks in it often, in parliamentary by-elections in particular, kicks in very late in the day. And so sure. if you look at a seat that is, for example, something like maybe 45% Tory, 30% Lib Dem, 20% Labour, you think, well, actually, if that tactical vote squeeze can really kick in effectively, the Lib Dems would have an excellent chance of winning. And, of course, one of the things the MRP stuff quite rightly isn't able to capture and doesn't say that it tries to capture is how people might react to its results. And the very way that people react to its results may well, therefore, alter how people vote. And if you do get different results in a constituency, that may just be due to the passage of time. Now, it it may be worth adding that in 2017, the MRP data was updated daily. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could could sort of track the the changes. As I understand it, YouGov are not going to be doing that this time, although... Uh, or at least it's not yet been confirmed that they're going to do that. Um, Chris Curtis from YouGov tweeted uh, that the exact details hadn't been finalised, but there would be at least one more MRP model, say, 
we'll have yeah. to see how closely we can track um, the changes or not. But I think that question about is the parliamentary by-election parallel the good one to use or not? Liberal Democrats with memories of mm -hmm. 2015 and how the party talked about how it was fighting 60-odd parliamentary by-elections around the country might feel a little bit nervous about. Indeed. Yeah. On the other hand, that is also the sort of dynamic uh, that we saw in seats the party won in the 2017 general election. Um, I think, you know, at this point in the 2017 general election, there were several seats the Lib Dems went on to win where the party was behind. Mm -hmm. And behind, by the sorts of margins, the MRP poll gives in a, a reasonable number of seats. Yeah. Um, so there is, in that sense, very much sure. uh, reasons to be both optimistic or pessimistic. And so, we will probably straddle that in our usual, our usual so way. So, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll don my <coughs> pessimistic, um, usual Cassandra um, position has arrived. Uh, as the person who has, for the last three or four months, said Boris Johnson is uh, winning the war even as he's losing battles. Um, and it gives me no pleasure, I should say, uh, in, in saying that it kind of feels like it's heading that way. So obviously, uh, you know, MRP um, may or may not be right, we don't know, but it bears out all the polling evidence there is at the moment. Mm. It's entirely in line with the data. In fact, it's entirely in line with what you'd get from a uniform national swing. Um, so uh, it does uh, invite the question, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we were having conversations around the Lib Dems, you know, being in a position to win up to 200 seats. Now, I think realistically, we always knew that was likely to be a stretch. But I think if you'd asked, uh, I'm sure you, I don't think you did give a prediction, but I think if you had uh, been asked uh, at point of, uh, you know, uh, torture to give a prediction Threatened a few weeks with a life-size bar chart, beaten over the head with it. Or, or the promise of a, a, a life-size chocolate bar. Uh, you have said. <laughs> I'm not, um, sure, not sure a life size chocolate bar is quite as attractive as it sounds when you stop <laughs> to think about it. But anyway. Um, so uh, you would have said, you know, hopefully sort of, you know, 30, 40, 50 mm. seats would have been uh, easily within reach because that would have been the case um, a couple of months ago based on polling evidence, based on uh, the Brexit party still riding high and the Leave vote therefore being substantially split, etc. Lib Dems were at 20% in the polls and so on. That's not the current situation, and let's not get too much into the soothsaying about, you know, we know the result yet, because obviously we don't, and it, it might change between now and December the 12th. But we let's will have a look record at... a separate episode of this podcast uh, with a completely different set of views <laughs> about what's likely to happen. So we'll just switch around in the feed well, afterwards, should, uh, after polling day, to be perhaps safe. Perhaps we should record a separate podcast, which probably would be our most popular, and an, an alternative reality uh, in which the Lib Dems had cruised to an overall majority. But we are where we are. Um, so what do you think are the reasons why the Lib Dem campaign, uh, at least on a national level, uh, you know, accepting that individual constituencies might feel that they're doing really well and that they, you know, the MRP survey doesn't reflect what they're hearing on the doorstep, etc. What's your take on why the Lib Dem uh, campaign feels like it's not caught fire yet? It's, uh, it's always... Um easier to answer this after the election, mm -hmm. not only because of the advantage of hindsight, but because you have a lot more proper evidence available. Sure. Um, so I will come on to answer your question in a <laughs> moment, but I think I, I just take this slight digression because particularly when campaigns are not soaring upwards in the polls, not surprisingly, a lot of people do express quite strongly held views about what they think is, mm -hmm. isn't working, what the party should or shouldn't do. Um, and I always think a really important first note of caution is that unless you've got evidence about what people completely unlike you in completely different bits of the country 
from the ones you've been to are thinking, your view is likely to be massively over-based on your own personal experience. And the more firmly you hold the view, the more likely it is that you're displaying your ignorance of the fact that there are lots of people and lots of voters out there who are completely different from you. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, so important caveats around how much knowledge people really do have before the event. Um, but I think there are two pictures that are probably safe to draw out and will stand up to later examination. One is just that classic two-party squeeze in a first-past-the-post contest that... You know, as we have got into the election, as has happened in some general elections before, the focus particularly on Labour and the Tories and each of their leaders squeezes out other parties. It's not only the Lib Dems who have been squeezed in that respect. If you look at the Greens, they've been on a sort of long-term yeah. sort of squeeze as well, even prior to pollsters switching to asking questions only based on who's standing in which constituency, which yeah. is obviously and of course, the Green vote share. And of course the Brexit party squeezed itself, but exactly, yeah. was responding to the fact that you yeah. know it was being squeezed. Yeah. Um, and, and But also I think the Brexit party decision to stand down a whole yeah. lot of candidates yeah. in a way even more emphasised the squeezed nature because even the Brexit party was saying, hey, look, in a large part of the country, this is really just about Labour or the Tories. It's mm -hmm. really just about Corbyn or Johnson. Um, so there is that squeeze that's happened, sure. um, and I can point to uh, having warned in advance that this is one of the dilemmas mm -hmm. that Lib Dems might face, um, and, and, and in that piece that I wrote, a sort of uh, previous Lib Dem newswire, um, I said, you know, the Lib Dems have got a couple of answers to that, a couple of ways to try and avoid that. One is to uh, very much double down on the effort in the target seats, and the MLP model gives... Uh, leaves that as an open question as to mm -hmm. what extent that's working because there are quite a few seats that Dems are within touching distance of potentially winning uh, but overall as we you know as we just talked about those are seats where the Lib Dems are currently behind uh, if the Dems end up winning those seats you can end up thinking well that was you know a tactical master stroke sure. the party managed to gain loads of seats as wide a big national squeeze who knows? And obviously, you know, Lib Dem activists who have been out talking, canvassing people are more likely to be Lib Dem. They're particularly bullish about, I oh, know we're finding loads of Lib Dems mm -hmm. in these seats. And sometimes that, that turns out to be true, sometimes not. We'll, the, you know, the, only, the, the only sensible reaction to that doubt, I think, if you're a Lib Dem, is to double down on trying to make it true yeah. by putting extra effort between now and polling day. Um, another factor that I touched on, I think, was the extent to which the party needs to focus on Brexit as giving itself a distinctive position mm -hmm. that people can have a reason for voting for out of principle, almost regardless of the tactical situation. Um, and I think this has worked to an extent, because let's not forget the Lib Dem vote share is currently down as being double, uh, around double what it was last time. I thought John Curtis, with whom I, uh, I appeared alongside on a different podcast a couple of days ago... Stephen's giving me a very no, bad not at all. I, I'm, um, I thought he made quite an interesting point about manifestos. We're about to merge into policy area. You'll be glad oh, to know, Stephen. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, where he said he thought the problem with the Lib Dem manifesto, as he viewed it, or the missed opportunity maybe, as he viewed it, was that he thought the other policies the Lib Dems are highlighting don't particularly reinforce the distinctively liberal, open, tolerant, etc. Mm -hmm. part of the political spectrum the Lib Dems are trying to make our own. And that, for example, I guess the mental health issue is a good is, is a good example of this. I think, you know, Lib Dems are absolutely right to talk about how mental health should be treated as seriously as physical health mm -hmm. and that there should be a parity of, of esteem and of, 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 of priority between them. Yet that's not, though, necessarily a distinctively 
liberal open tolerant um, attitude. You know, you can imagine, for example, a lifelong conservative being very passionate about the importance of, of mental health treatment, or you can imagine a anti-civil liberties Labour lever MP. Mm. I think there are probably quite a few. Um, yeah. Having a yeah, having a similar view on that, and the, so the particular issue that John Curtis highlighted was around immigration, and whether, for example, liberal Democrats should therefore be making more of mm-hmm. its stance on views that it's really hard to imagine. You know, that sort of Labour lever or lifelong conservative agreeing with with the party on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, interesting. So I had three reasons, um, one of which you've talked about, which is the squeeze election, and I guess the particular worry because uh, I, you know, I said I'd be the Cassandra uh, the particular worry is that uh, whilst the optimistic position was that this would be great for the Lib Dems because unpopular Labour leader uh, unpopular Conservative leader surely that gives the Lib Dems a historic opportunity there's also the reverse of that which is that uh, traditionally the Lib Dems have struggled when it looks like a hung parliament might be an outcome of an election and you can think of 1992 mm. being a classic example of that, and again in 2015 uh, as well, when mm. um, at the time the prevailing thought was that a hung parliament was quite likely, and that scared soft conservatives back into sticking with their party each time to the detriment of the, of the Lib Dem position. Then you combine that with the fact that there is fear of a Labour leader, and again you had that with Neil Kinnock in 1992, and uh, perhaps less so with Ed Miliband in 2015, but there was that um, fear of the um, Miliband-Sturgeon um, Labour-SNP pact, which anecdotally at least seemed to swing quite a few uh, Conservative voters back into the Conservative fold who otherwise might have stuck with the Lib Dems or, or turned to the Lib Dems. So there's that kind of pincer movement that seems to be going on. So it could, well, you know, fear of hung parliament this time plus fear of Labour leader um, amongst certainly amongst Conservative um, voters could well be difficult. So that's the squeeze election thing. I think the other one that you've touched on on the manifesto, I think is interesting. So I was looking down the the list of policies that the BBC had highlighted. Mm. I have read the manifesto, but I was particularly interested in the ones that the BBC highlighted. And if you just search BBC 12 Lib Dem policies, it will come up. And um, when you you run your eye down them, there's nothing wrong with any of them particularly. Uh, But it's hard to see where the clear... Goldwater is between the Lib Dems and the other parties because this is a spending election. Mm. And I don't know how far this is within the Lib Dems' control because what mm. you've got, of course, in this election is you've got Boris Johnson promising to be a Brexity Heather, mm. you know, someone who believes in Brexit, sure, but also in spending big, in big capital projects, in investing mm. in the NHS. And he's sort of, I was about to say he's got a track record, he doesn't really, but he's, he's got a, he knows how to talk the language. Mm. Uh, and as London Mayor, he, you know, he tried to invest in big, bold policies, lots of them which didn't work. But anyway, uh, he, you know, he, he, li- he's, he feels like he kind of lives that narrative of, yes, I believe in spending more, let's open the spending tabs. And of course, you've got Labour promising to nationalise your granny. <clears throat> um, so you've got uh, a Labour Party wanting to nationalise everything inside. So it's hard, I think, for the Lib Dems, when you look down their list of policies, most of which are, we will spend more on investment in public services. Uh, you know, they're going to be free early yeah. years, childcare, 20,000 more teachers, penny on income tax for the NHS, etc. You start to get into the argument about, well, you know, our billions are bigger than your billions, which is much harder to yeah, and, have and, an election around. And, and the risk there is it's a bit like the £10,000 income tax 
allowance policy in the coalition years, mm -hmm. which was in its own merits a very good policy. It's something the Tories wouldn't have done. David Cameron famously said on TV that it couldn't be done, and then the Lib Dems made it happen. But fundamentally, in terms of the broad brush political picture, if you want a party that's going to cut taxes, yeah. the Conservatives are, you know, have that natural pitch and saying, yeah. hey, there's this one particular tax that we managed to cut much better than the Tories, yeah. was just always a little bit of a niche yeah. tangential sure, argument. For, forcing the Conservatives to tax cut more than they would have done exactly. otherwise it's, is not the greatest um, damn pitch ever. Now, and of course the redistributive yeah. effects weren't greater and the earlier cuts a little bit more so. But yeah, this, is, speaking, this is where our views again differ slightly because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm keener in that sense on the policy impact of that outcome of uh, of, of the £10,000 allowance, I guess, than you are. But I think that broad point, I think we would both agree yeah. on, that that it wasn't distinctively, oh, the government did that because yeah. the Lib Dems were in it. If that is cut taxes, yeah. not terribly. And the risk, in a way, for the Lib Dems this time is if you want to spend lots of money on public services, well, Labour are sort of the natural yeah. answer. Now, of course, what the Lib Dems have tried to do, therefore, is to say that, well, we're the ones who will spend more and be responsible about it. Sure. Um, and the tone, though, of it, I think, at times, risks sounding a little bit too like um, either that the party is just a little bit cautious and hasn't caught up with that bigger political move towards, you know, across all parties now to no longer really be talking about austerity and debt and deficit, mm -hmm. but talking about what, do we, what should we spend more money on. And also there is, it sometimes offers a little bit of, a, of an easy opening to... Uh, the Labour Party in particular to attack the Lib Dems. The Labour Party, of course, would attack the Lib Dems come what may. But if you sound a bit too much like, oh, well, we're the one party that still believes it's important to get the national debt down, that sounds sort of backward-looking and out of sure. touch with the times. Even though, again, on the substance of it, you, know, you look at the level of national debt and you think, well, what will happen if there is another economic crash? Yeah, yeah. The yeah. country's headroom for dealing with that is massively reduced and that's actually quite worrying. Yeah. But things like making quite a bit in the media for a day or two about how the party wanted to run a surplus on the current account, they'll think, I'm not quite sure who that's really designed to appeal to. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not, I suppose to Conservative Remainers, but, um, but yeah. I mean, I think but the, Conservative the third... Remainers you know, also want... Conservative Remainers, who the Lib Dems might be able to win over, also, for example, want decent public services. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, and this, I guess if John Curtis were here, this is the extension he might make of his point, but I'm putting words in his mouth, so uh, don't hold, hold them against John. But I can imagine the extension of his point that he might make is, of course, those sorts of Conservative Remainers are also the sorts of people who are much more amenable to things like the argument on immigration. Sure. To say yeah, yeah. actually immigration is really good. Yeah. You know, it's good for the country and good for the economy. Yeah. Um, Fiscally conservative yeah. and, uh, and socially yeah. liberal. Yeah. The, the thing that struck me Sorry, though about that oh, BBC list okay. um, was, just before we move away from it too much, yeah. um, was that in itself, when I first read it, I came to a slightly similar conclusion as, as you of I'm not quite sure what the story running through it is and then I thought yeah but of course remember this is the BBC's choice as to who what to put together mm -hmm. um, there's always a degree to which that may not necessarily reflect what the party's trying to say. I then had a look at how several other news outlets had summarised the Lib Dem Manifesto, mm -hmm. and the thing that struck me from that was how little similarity there was in the lists that right. different outlets had come up. Now, if one outlet was uh, the trade press for, let's say, the estate agent's profession, and another outlet was the trade press for, say, people who work in the NHS you would expect them to come up with very different lists and that would almost be a good sign that there's enough detail yeah. for each other. What though struck me was that even amongst mainstream media outlets, different journalists all writing up reasonably neutral stroke 
mildly positive stories about Lib Dem mm-hmm. Manifesto, came up with very different lists. And yeah. that suggests, perhaps going back to John Curtis's point, a slight lack of focus on the, well, what makes us distinctively yeah. liberal. I mean, isn't that, uh, I mean, that highlights an issue, I think, generally for the Lib Dems, uh, that it's a party that loves policy making. Um, and there's a question when you, you know, you've got a 66 page manifesto, you've got to get that balance right between having a programme of government that looks serious and credible and costed and thoughtful versus something that sprawls over so many areas that actually when it do, you're inviting um, newspapers and others who are summarising it for readers who are uh, mm. nearly all not going to actually read the manifesto itself, you're inviting them to just kind of pick and choose what they want because it's such a smorgasbord that they will choose the ones where they have a pre-packaged kind of analysis of, of that sort of policy area. So it then... I suppose there's been lots of criticisms of the Conservative Party manifesto for being quite pared down um, and for being quite vague because it tends to sort of look at controversial issues and say we will launch a consultation or we will launch a review and so on. So you've got this whole kind of get Brexit done so we can unleash Britain's potential kind of tagline and then actually Britain's potential turns out to be we'll have a review about these policies and probably not do anything. Um, yes, yeah, so we've got to unleash the potential to do un- what we were doing. Unleash before. the potential to have a review. Um, so <laughs> it sounds uh, like a caricature of a Lib Dem policy. But nonetheless, well. in terms of uh, you know, from a Conservative Party point of view, that's fine. It mm. does the job. Get Brexit done is the, is the line for everything, mm. etc. I suppose the thing we haven't touched on yet, um, which would be my third reason mm. why I think the Lib Dems um, are, uh, are faltering, uh, it's the elephant in the room, is the revoke policy, mm. and the fact that that's run into trouble because um, I think primarily because uh, I, mean, I, I was sort of half supportive of it when it was first announced on the grounds that uh, if you're going to end up with a referendum you have to have a deal to put up against ref, uh, against mm. Remain and therefore as there wasn't at the time any kind mm. of deal um, it seemed not illegitimate to go for revoke but mm. of course since then since the party adopted its policy of revoke article 50 there was a deal struck mm. And I think since that time, the Lib Dems, indeed Remain Alliance more generally, but in particular the Lib Dems, have been caught off guard and a bit flat-footed. And I think this has always been my worry about the way the party makes policy, which is, whilst the internal democracy, which means the party members determine policy, is laudable in lots of ways, and I don't want to be seen to be attacking that too much, nonetheless, it means that the party finds it really hard when circumstances change quite radically as they have done in the last uh, month to six weeks, to be able to pivot in a way uh, that uh, allows it to respond. And I think the moment Boris Johnson landed a deal was the moment Revoke fell away as a policy um, because it was seen, I think understandably, as an illegitimate tactic. But of course it's underpinned all the manifesto costings because the Brexit bonus the £50 billion that the party is able to point to and able, therefore, to afford all the incredibly expensive policies that are in the manifesto, rely on revoking Article 50 and staying in the European Union. If you kick that away, suddenly you end up with an incredibly expensive manifesto um, with no way of paying it uh, other than by borrowing more. So I understand why the party stuck with it, both out of, because it has to, because it has no democratic way in which it can overturn a policy that conference has voted for, um, but also because it's making this promise in order that it can uh, afford things. And I, I think that points to a general issue we saw with tuition fees, etc., that it's, it's seen more as a signalling policy rather than a policy the Lib Dems expect to have to implement in government. Um, because 
Lib Dems never really seriously expected to be in government. And I think it's kind of always therefore seemed a bit false that the party's putting forward a, uh, a policy that it knows is a bit democratically dodgy mm. but has some justification when there wasn't a deal. But uh, now there is a deal, it's still putting it forward because it wants to try and convince Remain voters that it really is Remainy and, uh, and more Remainy than Labour. Uh, and I think it, it's looked a bit exposed and flimsy, and I think that's uh, been... Uh, You're not a fan of it, then? <laughs> well, I, no, I, like, like I say, I think at the time, when there was no deal, it was a, yeah. it, it was a pragmatic response to the fact there was no deal on the table, um, and it was uh, a legitimate response to that. Um, at the time when Boris Johnson was saying, I will go for no deal. Yeah. Um, I think revoke was an extremist policy you could put in opposition to that, and people... and you, you know, I think there's an argument to be made. I think it was always a bit tricky to argue because of the referendum, for obvious reasons, but I could see how that argument could be made. The moment that deal was struck was the moment the revoke policy yeah. ha was doomed, I think. So, um... Go on, what's your... <laughs> uh, let, let's go on a slight digression initially about <laughs> the, the role of party conference, mm -hmm. because I think um, you are a little bit unfair in, in sort of blaming the party's democratic processes... Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, I should say it, it, it was pushed by the leadership. It's yeah. not like this was something that no, was forced did. on the leadership. But also I think, because you know, we, we, we sometimes have had this, particularly after previous general elections, where again with the advantage of, of better evidence and hindsight, where people say, oh, this policy was a bad thing, or that policy shouldn't have mm -hmm. been done, whatever. And then somebody says, oh yeah, but you know, that was what the conference was voted for. Is There is actually a lot of power that rests with things like the Federal Policy Committee and the Federal mm -hmm. Board and so on in terms of being able to say, you know, what is both in terms of being able to make policy, for example, the Policy Committee actually has quite broad powers to be able to make policy above and beyond what happens at a conference when it comes to drawing up the manifesto, deciding mm -hmm. what to put in the manifesto, what to prioritise. Sure. Again, there's a lot of democratically accountable power, hooray, because we are Democrats and I'm glad that it's that way, but there is quite a lot of power to do stuff um, sort of beyond and in between the constraints of what conference has voted for. But I'm, I mean, I, and, I accept and, all that, and but there wouldn't have been a, a way on this policy, given it is the number one policy, or maybe the number two, but yeah. one of the top two issues yeah. in this election, there would have been no way in which Federal Policy Committee could override the conference decision, is there? It can amend yeah. things, it can update true, costings. But, 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 but can... this, this gets on to, I think, the, the, the related point where we may agree a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> which is that, you know, the party could have done a manifesto and could have sort of pitched it initially as saying, you know, this is our pitch to be the influential party in the hung parliament. Mm -hmm. And in that context, oh, yes, by the way, if there is a Lib Dem majority, they'll be revoked. But we could have we could have fronted continued support for people's vote referendum as being the prime, the yeah. prime message. And that could have been done in a way where the small print in paragraph three covers the fact if there's a Lib Dem majority will revoke and therefore we're yeah. still in line with the conference of So I think there is a lot more scope to be flexible in the choices that you make. Now, there's definitely a question about whether the choices that have made, were made uh, will turn out to be the right ones mm -hmm. or not. But I, I, I think the reason I particularly want to emphasise that is there is a risk that we end up in the situation that we have sometimes over past elections where people wrongly blame conference and therefore think the answer is to reduce yeah, yeah, the amount of democracy yeah. that there is internally in the party. And I think that would be a, a misreading uh, of the situation. I think it's a half misreading. Uh, so, as I say, I'm not, uh, I, I, you know, I think, for example, when the coalition negotiations were uh, in there uh, going on back mm. in 2010, mm. the fact that the leadership was able to say, look, we have to get this mm. through our uh, 
special party mm. conference was a, an incredibly strong lever. Yeah. And if and anything, a lever that wasn't used enough. Perhaps. So, um, you know, so I, I, I think there is a lot of good reasons for it. And of course, you know, I, you know, I believe in grassroots democracy, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, but it does mean that in particular instances like this, where circumstances change, so and when the conference voted for it, pushed by the leadership, should be said, so this wasn't something like the conference yeah. forced it on the leadership, but when Revoke was being pushed through, uh, it was uh, in fear that the Labour Party was about to come out officially for a people's vote in its conference uh, the following And as you week. rightly said, a point at which there wasn't a, de a plausible deal really to put in a referendum. And there wasn't a plausible deal. Um, I mean, I think on the Labour Party one, it, it still seems a bit odd to me because actually you know, the number of seats where the Lib Dems were expecting to take on Labour were relatively few compared to the number of seats where the Lib Dems were expecting to take on the Conservatives. So I don't quite know why the party felt such an urge to outflank Labour. But anyway, it did. So that was the kind of reason why it happened. I guess my point is more limited, but it is, uh, I think, in any kind of um, uh, review of uh, what mm. uh, after the election has to be looked at is if a flagship policy, if something happens, you know, in the weeks after... Um, a flagship policy being announced but before an election, what can the party do that means that it can respond to that? And it feels like a lot of the polling, a lot of the focus group work, etc., happened in late summer, early autumn, and, uh, you know, f shaped the fact that Revoke was seen to be a, a good response, but didn't take account of the fact that, uh, you know, if a deal was struck you'd need to look at yeah. that again. And just to wrap up the point about the internal democratic processes, the very fact of a deal being struck is exactly the sort of circumstance in which it would have been not unreasonable and I think widely acceptable within the party for the policy committee, for example, to say, because there has been a significant mm -hmm. change in circumstances since the last party conference, here is, here is an updated version of the okay. policy. Um, now, on the, on, the, on the substance, as it were, though, mm -hmm. of... Revoke or not? I mean, as as you say, you know, when it, when this policy was sort of tested out and so on earlier in the year, it tested out extremely well. Um, I think, though, the other thing about it is that there is a real difficulty if you go into an election and you don't say we're in it to win and be prime minister. Um, if you do, there's obviously scope for ridicule. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you don't, you then get even more drawn into the, OK, so who are you going to vote to be Prime Minister? Are you re Do you really want Prime Minister Corbyn or do you really want Prime Minister Johnson? And that can be not too damaging. It can even be beneficial in, say, a 1997-type scenario where there is a leader of another party who is very popular and who politically is different from the Lib Dems. Tony Blair, 1997 vintage, wasn't a Lib mm. Dem. But actually there's quite a lot of common ground on quite yep. a lot of issues. Um, the problem the Lib Dems face in this election is there is nobody who falls into that category. Yeah. Um, maybe a, say, Keir Starmer-led Labour Party. Yeah, you can imagine that sort of situation may be arising. But with Corbyn and Johnson, and particularly with the overall state of the Tory party, a bit more of a question, I would guess, about what a non-Corbyn-led Labour Party might look like, there isn't that option to say, OK... We're not saying we're going to win and have the prime minister, but we are saying we're going to support Party X, and that can work because that party is so popular. And and I suspect the risk, and again, we'll see how the next couple of weeks play out. But the risk at the moment seems to be that the Lib Dems are caught not just in this two-party squeeze, but also this situation where Labour and Corbyn are neither popular nor unpopular enough. Mm -hmm. It's sort of you know. Um, it's almost the, the opposite of the sort of the sweet spot. I'm not quite sure what the, the opposite of a sweet spot would be. It's um, a sour spot. Where, it's a sour spot, yes, indeed. Um, where if 
the opposition was much more popular. You can imagine a 1997 type situation of the Liberal Democrats saying, well, we definitely would want the, want the Tories out. And you know what? We think we might be able to negotiate some sort of arrangement with Labour. That might work. If Labour were and Corbyn were much more unpopular, then likewise, you can see saying how with none of them, there might be the space for the Lib Dems to actually break through into second place. But at the moment, the party has got that squeeze because Labour is neither popular yeah. enough nor unpopular enough to make that space uh, yeah. for the Lib Dems. And this gets back to, I think, the revoke point of view, which is that you know, you've got to think about not just what is the alternative, but how would people react to the alternative? Mm. And so if the party was going in with a pitch that isn't about we're going to win the election, you can see why some of, say, the ridicule directed at Lib Dems wouldn't have happened, but there'd be a whole load of other ridicule and attacks and other ways the parties would respond to that that would have happened. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think that... Uh, I, I'm not going to major on this point, but I, I think the point the party's trying to get across is that it's not a wasted vote. Mm. But I, back to John, to your channeling of John Curtis's point, I guess it feels like there was more of an opportunity to stress mm. values and to try and build up a core vote uh, around some key messaging. And the I stand before you as your next Liberal Democrat Prime Minister. I'm not sure how that um, kind of personalisation. Mm of the leader uh, and you know I accept leaders are very important mm. in a campaign uh, and uh, I think you know the party the Dems are often a bit uncomfortable with that because it doesn't strike the kind of pluralist uh, note that we like but it's the reality of how uh, election campaigns are fought in a media age so I understand why Joe Swinson is, is front and centre mm. but if what you're trying to do is get across our values or your mm. values if you are a liberal internationalist mm. um, uh, kind hearted soul mm. who believes in progressive policies but wants an economy yep. that doesn't get uh, run into the ground by the Conservatives or Labour. I don't know whether the way in which you introduce that is by saying I stand for you as candidate to become Prime Minister, yeah. as opposed to trying to centre on our values or your values. If, like me, you want to see Britain at the heart of Europe, if, like me, you want to see uh, a sound economy yeah. uh, and, yeah. uh, and better public services, etc. You know, I mean, I think the foreword to the manifesto actually does this does that job pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a question which it'll be important to pick over the pieces after after the event in terms of learning lessons for the future. But my because my initial impression is that I think a lot of members of FPC very much tried hard to make the manifesto do exactly what you've said. And if you look at the foreword, they succeeded. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way, as we were saying, different newspaper outlets, different media outlets wrote up the main story of the Lib Dem Manifesto once you get beyond Brexit, that feels like that points towards the manifesto not being nearly as successful at that as we yeah. would have liked. So there's a lot, there will be a lot to pick over um, to learn from that. But I think what it does also touch on, and this is perhaps a point we should sort of wrap up on, is it goes back to my old favourite point about the problem the Liberal Democrats face fundamentally is having such a small core vote. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in this election is a classic example of the problem that if you start with a small core vote, you're much more amenable to being squeezed. It's much tougher to break through and be taken yeah. as a serious runner in an election. And you have to work so much harder to try to get a little bit of a share of the, of the action. And had the party been going into this election with a much larger core vote, Many of the issues we've talked about would still definitely be relevant and so on, but they would be playing out in a very different and much more favourable context. And mm. I think the key lesson to learn from this is, you know, yes, there'll be questions about art you know, revoking Article 50 or not, or the focus on Joe Swinson or not, or how the manifesto worked or not. Yeah, there'll be lots of it. 
but underlying it all, the basic premise of saying we need to give people a really distinctive reason of voting for us that is a reason to vote for us regardless of all of those other pressures of the two-party system and therefore we're really going to major on Brexit that I think is even with the bumps we've had so far in this election a the been the correct call yeah had we not been doing that imagine you know things would be so massively worse sure there wasn't that distinctive thing and the problem the party faces is how do we get to a position where the call vote is larger and therefore that distinctive position is one that brings that much more benefit i agree and just to um, bring us full circle and one of the uh, i'll end on a positive note is uh that mrp survey showed that uh you know my finger so the, hovered uh, over the stop recording button uh, there to just ensure just, you really did <laughs> no no i am genuinely so uh, one of the big problems the party found with the coalition mm. was that having been in uh, first or second place in 300 mm. seats mm. across the country at the 2010 election by 2015 the party was pushed back so far it was in first or second place in about 35 seats uh, or so and then the that MRP, went up to 50 by 2017 in 2017 it was up to 50 and then the mrp survey we, st- mm. uh, we were talking about shows the party in first or second place in about 150 seats or 134, so 134 i believe yeah. okay so uh, you know in terms of at least growth mm. for the future uh, even though the uh, headline from the MRP survey is disappointing, it does show that the Lib Dems are almost certain to be in a much stronger position, at least at the next election, which, who knows, could be next year. Yeah, indeed. And I think if you look at things like membership, you look at fundraising, you look at potential first or second places, you look at the size of the party's local government base, there's a lot of stuff that has moved in the right direction. Yeah. So... Uh, in that unlikely scenario where we're not celebrating Joe Swinson's Prime Minister at Christmas, <laughs> if we're they're trying to work out what is the right course for the party through the next parliament to continue to recover and to continue to grow, there will be quite a lot of positives to look at and, and, and elements of progress to look to build on. But obviously there will be even more of them if we manage to redouble our efforts in those target seats and turn many more of those... Oh, Lib Dem's not that far behind, but quite a big Labour vote left still to squeeze seats from being Tory wins and flipping them over into Lib Dem wins. And it won't require that much of a upside to really very noticeably change the number of seats the Lib Dems win. Interestingly, of course, that you know, if as predominantly these would be seats the Lib Dems win from, Labour, uh, from the Tories rather than from Labour, every extra Lib Dem seat basically takes two off the projected you know, Tory majority. Um, so we may well yet get a little bit of excitement as to whether, you know, are the Lib Dems moving up enough to be able to make hunk Parliament looking looking much more credible once again. So a lot of what we've said um, about how it looks like there might be a Tory majority and how the public are reacting to that may turn out to be completely misplaced. So it may still be go back to your constituencies and prepare for government, but it may also be go back to your constituencies and prepare for a decent second. I knew you wouldn't be able to end on a positive note, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs>